to Sixth Four, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures, and learnings for Kiwi tech organizations. I'm your host, Bradley Scott, and each episode I invite co-hosts and guests to tell a story of an important part of a Kiwi tech organization's journey. Today, Xero is an often cited example of success in the New Zealand tech sector. With nearly 2.5 million paying customers, annual recurring revenues of nearly 900 million, and a market capitalization of 20 billion, Xero is now a local SaaS juggernaut. However, back in 2009, with just 6,000 customers and 1 million of revenue, the success was far from guaranteed. It was then that today's guest, one of Xero's first product managers, joined the team. And over the next six years, he had a front row seat to see customers grow to nearly 500,000 and annual revenues surpass 150 million. So, Tokes, maybe you can introduce yourself to start with. Uh, hi, Bradley. Good to, good to be part of this inaugural episode. So let's hope it goes well today and we get this on the airwaves. My name's Andrew Tokely. People call me Tokes. Uh, it's a abbreviation of my last name rather than a habit. I have been involved in product for uh, probably officially since 2009 uh, when I started at Zero. Before that, I was much more on the technology side of, of the game, um, but still in leadership roles. So product came along as a, an awakening for me that, like a lot of people in my field that who like playing at that intersection of product of you know customer technology and business? Um, there was actually a role for you where you didn't have to actually be the CEO, and so so that was appealing to me. So yeah, so I spent six years at Zero, seeing them grow, moved into a startup after that, um, and for the last three years I've been running my own advisory coaching of product people, broadly on a mission to raise the understanding of uh, product and also the practice of product to achieve better results. Great. So going back all the way to 2009, you joined Zero as a product manager. What did being a product manager at Zero in 2009 look like? Well, interestingly, nobody really knew what a product manager was then. So I wasn't actually called that. Uh, I don't know when that title actually came about. Ironically, I don't think I was ever a product manager. I started with the title of product development manager which was really a title i think they just made it up alistair Gregg, i think he's a smart guy thought oh that sounds good he wanted to do development management i wanted him to do more product stuff so let's manage them together and create a product development manager role and so i really was acting as a development manager in many ways so the developers reported straight into me um for uh for quite a long time and um and that was fine. And that was mainly because most of the senior technology people were quite happy leading from a technology point of view and didn't really want to be managing anyone. And I was quite happy to. Um, and so product management at that time didn't mean anything, but my understanding of the discipline increased over those early years. And we started coming up really on our own because there wasn't really too many people to follow in New Zealand, coming up with how to organize ourselves, what sort of teaming structure made sense, 
how to evolve from really just this big resourcing meeting that used to happen every week and would just throw projects at people and just amass people and steal them from other teams. And we were pretty much in that mode for the first few months, um, uh, but gradually evolved how we organised ourselves. By the time I left, after about six years, I think we would have had around six or seven product owners, um, maybe the first product managers who were starting to manage those product owners. And the the part of the organization I was looking after, we I think we probably had seven or eight product teams uh, around the core product that I was leading. Mm-hmm. And so when you joined, Zero uh, wasn't your first gig in the industry. Did Zero look different from other companies that you worked with at the time? Was there something special or notable about it? Oh, I tell you what, it looked bloody good coming out of the services game, which is what I was in before. So I was doing a lot of responding to RFPs, um, death march projects that were never going to be on time, on budget, and to anyone's satisfaction. It was a pretty brutal game to be involved in, especially in Wellington where where I was working. There was a lot of government tendering going on, so they would their procurement process was such that they would ask you to respond to an RFP where you had to say what you were going to build, how much it was going to cost, how much it was, you know, people were going to work on it, when you're going to be finished, and, you know, they really only scratched the surface of actually what they wanted. And um, and so you were doomed to fail. So, like, I mean, I'm painting a bad picture, but uh, some of it was really fun. It meant what the good thing was as a technologist, it meant you could go file new every time you engaged with a new clients. So that was nice. You could wipe it. There was no technical debt because you didn't own any of the technology once you'd built it for the first time. So that so in that sense, it was a great way to cut my teeth on in technology uh, and how we how we worked as a technology team. But I was re- specifically looking for a product company to work for. I thought, right, I've done my, I've done my time here. Uh, enjoyed it for, for the most part, to be honest, but really wanted to live the, live the dream a little bit more. So at the time, uh, we were all talking about Agile, right? And so and it was a development construct, which has very little to do with value. Uh, and... I was all about oh, agile, we can do iterations, we can do sprints, we can kind of, you know, iterate what we build and make it better and better. So I was thinking of it very much through a technology lens about what product could give me in an agile sense. And only later really realized that it was actually a bigger opportunity than just, incre- you know, working on the technology again and again to make it better, but actually you could increasingly add value to the customers who are using your software. And that became an even bigger drive for me. Yeah, great. And so... In that customer context or the zero business context, what were the priorities for zero at that time? What was the company trying to achieve? When I, I when I started, they hadn't really achieved. Well, they'd achieved a level of of viable product for a very narrow use case. If you were just raising a few invoices uh, in part as part of your business. Um, I think they had a GST, a tax return, sales tax return. Um, they didn't have any of the sort of credit notes or purchase ordering or workflows that they have now. Reporting was pretty basic. Um, it was very bare bones. Uh, and they had the core value, which was the bank rec, so you could reconcile your bank account with your accounts. So they, they had sort of like a, for a very simple business, you could probably use it just. Um, but what was fascinating to me was everybody loved us. So we didn't feel any pressure to rock out all these other accounting features that uh, we knew were necessary for businesses to operate at a higher level. Um, And I remember the day when we started getting our first negative um, feedback from customers because we were the darlings of 
of, of the New Zealand tech scene, right? And so that we were given a lot of latitude to take our time and um, and not have things and people kind of accepted it. But then we started getting feedback going, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about being able to do this? What about this uh, permutation of business, the way they operate, the way I operate? And, and so we, the prioritization became a lot more difficult in terms of what we had to build. It wasn't just, um, certainly in those early days, it was a somewhat of a feature ticking box for accounting features, but with a high emphasis on experience and design of those features. Bankrec was actually one of the, uh, interestingly, one of the few examples in the early days where we really solved a problem in an innovative way. I, I would argue that in the early days of Zero, most of the other features were somewhat functionary in that, you know, GST return has certain fields on it. And sure, you need to fill that, you need to be able to extract them from the data that you collect. And so there was this, we weren't building Instagram, right? We weren't building Facebook. Um, but we were trying to create those necessary data inputs and outputs in a in a in a, in a with a good experience behind it. And so we had a lot of emphasis on the experience, and from that was driven a lot by the design team. So we had a good alliance with the design team as we built out our product capability. And I think it was only really later uh, that we started to mature our product practice to think beyond the function and to start thinking about how we might solve that better. But in the early days, it was there was just a, a lot of basic stuff to do. And then, and we had, and to probably to answer your question, actually, in terms of how we balance the priority of certain things, I think we, and I spoke a lot about it on a previous um, podcast, where we actually had a really good strategy, and everybody understood that strategy. And it meant that we could say no to things a little bit, more easily than you might otherwise. So we knew we weren't going to invest heavily in the UK, even though we'd created a UK office. And that meant very easy to say no to those requests that were very specific to that market. And that was true for the size of businesses that we supported, the throughput. You know, if you were doing thousands of invoices a week, we weren't right for you. We could stay no to those sorts of businesses. Um, but the but the accounting profession has been around a long time, so there were certain things that we knew we had to get to. We weren't inventing accounting, but we were inventing how you experience accounting. So what do you think was the, the cause for having exclusively positive feedback back then? And what changed to suddenly give you that negative feedback? I think it was purely customer numbers and exhausting family and friends in those early years Every, you know people knew us we were very well um there's a lot of publicity around rod's involvement and um the early growth that we were coming through and early on actually it took a little bit longer by the time i'd arrived i think they were two and a half years in and they had a bit of a speed wobble where they they weren't quite sure if it was going to stick and then it was getting much better when i started to come on so it was even another transition earlier on but i think the um I think we were we were pretty confident that we were onto a onto a winner. So so we built up the customer base from these family and friends initially. Um, when I arrived, I don't know the exact numbers. There was a, a thousand, few thousand customers, maybe a few hundred even customers. Um, and so with the when we started to get more volume of customers, more diversity of customer customers who had been with us for a longer period of time, their patience started to run out in certain cases and it wasn't systemic like we had really good 
relationship with our customers for many, many years, and, um, and I'm sure they still do. But it's kind of like an inevitable point in any product's lifestyle is you're not going to impress all the people all the time. And so there was a lot of promise for what it might be at the beginning that people and those early adopter people who took it on were willing to wait for. And then we got more awareness in the market. So you got some people coming who maybe weren't as tolerant as the early adopters and who decided that um, they all had the impression that the product was fully baked when they came on board and then they discovered, oh, you don't do credit notes, you don't debit notes, debit notes, you know, all this sort of stuff that they just expected it did as part of a mature business. And it wasn't all that. And so all the rah-rah that the media maybe had picked up was from those early adopters who were happy with, I don't know, a website that just opened. Uh, and then you get these later adopters who are going, well, I thought it was a proper accounting package and MYB do this and that. Why don't you do it too? Uh, without realizing that we had a lot of catching up to do. So you, had, you said that you had a very clear strategy. What was that strategy at that point in time? In the early days, uh, when I was there, we, we succeeded in the New Zealand market to a certain degree. We knew we could, uh, we'd changed from trying to sell directly to small businesses and we'd proven the accounting model, the accounting channel is the best way to um, to get customers. And so that strategy of going through the accounting channel was one that worked in New Zealand and our strategy was to repeat that in Australia and to do that ahead of investing too deeply in more markets offshore, in particular the UK and the US. We're starting to get in our, we're in our radar, but further on. And so we were quite clear about seeing the same traction in Australia before going wider. And that dictated the type of product that we built, which specialised regional features we built and didn't build, and the sort of traction we wanted to see before moving further afield. And what I think it did, and I don't know whether this was just lucky coincidence, but when I look back now, what it also enabled us to do was to, we were growing very fast as a company and we were onboarding lots of people to be able to break into a new market that was primarily going to be a sales effort. We didn't have a lot of customization to do uh, in the product. Accounting's accounting everywhere, right? So we had to do a BAS return and a few odds and ends, but largely it was uh, fit for purpose for a large part of that small medium market. Uh, so it enabled us to understand, you know, to work out how we were going to scale as a as a as a company and as a product team. It allowed me to build out some of the processes that we wanted to operate under, some of the teaming models that we wanted to experiment with, while our customer numbers still grew really healthily, and we you know we we were doubling in size um, in those early years pretty regularly. Yeah. So between two thousand and nine and two thousand and ten, revenues tripled tripled again in twenty eleven. There could have been um, lots of things that went wrong through that period, and, and clearly they didn't. What did you see at the time as the threats or the most likely failures, and, and how did the company go about avoiding them? I, mean, I think in the, in the New Zealand and Australia market, possibly the most likely result that would have been negative would have been Myo waking up and maybe doing a little bit more than they had. And so they, they really had one in that desktop market and had done really well pre sort of web 2.0 times and it would have been a bad outcome if they'd started to wake up and smell the coffee a little bit earlier and that didn't happen and we, so we were given a lot of time to uh, to get ahead of them I think our our success in putting 
design and experience ahead of of of, of a lot of things was a good a good strategy and was different to other players in the market. This was pretty early on in web as well. You know, 2009, you know, yeah, we, we were only just starting to put transactional websites together. It was, you know, they were there, but it was, the technology was really quite new. And so um, we were very ahead of the game in terms of creating experience on the web that most people expected from a desktop, um, but didn't even know it was possible uh, in, in the browser. And so I think that that put us in good stead. But when I think about, when I look back and think about why we succeeded, right, like I didn't know at the time. You don't know when you're in the middle of it why this thing's working. But when I look back now, and I've been saying this a lot recently, so I feel like a bit of a broken record, but the, but the, we didn't do any of the, the I've, I've coached over 40 companies in the last three years. And I don't know that we did half of the things I coach. At zero in the in the in the 2009 10 11 sort of time rate, we we didn't even know what product was right. So, um, and but what we did do well, and and I I look back and I go, well, that's interesting. Maybe I'm coaching the wrong things. That's one well, one possible reason, right? But I, what I actually think is that the thing that the magic source that we had was this amazing alignment across the business for many many years. And I don't know how it is now. I suspect they're still doing pretty good compared to other companies. But Rod's leadership for all of his, like, excited, over-exuberant positivity about what was possible, uh, given our limited resources at the time, his, his very clear message to everybody. It was, you're under no doubt about where he wanted to take the business, what he thought was important, what was working, why he thought the design team were amazing, why he used to regularly say, you product people, you guys are the most important, important people in the business. You know, he used to say that, right? He probably said it to every leader in the business, but we I believed it. And we were up on stage at all the zero cons. So whether whether he had a personal strategy to place product leadership at a very high pedestal, that made a huge difference to certainly to my career and to the people who followed on from where I'd left left off. A lot of people have created amazing careers there and have done amazing things. And I, you know, that's a, that's a, I put a lot of that credit to Rod and to the hiring exceptional leaders around him. Philip Feelinger did an amazing job in those early years. Uh, there was lots of other people who were in leadership roles. Craig Walker, in a technology leadership role, did an amazing job building the first version of the product. Still there in the company today. Great leadership there. Uh, you know, not a great manager. He didn't want to be a manager, but he he was leading by example and could annoy people by going too fast and you know not not cleaning up after himself. But he got us in front of customers with amazing product quicker than we would have ever done had we done it uh, in a different way. So I think great technology leadership, great product leadership, obviously, uh, great design leadership, and and he was very keen on bringing people in there who could influence so that he didn't have to across the whole uh, business. And, my, and my, probably my favorite boss, like Alistair Gregg as a COO, loved working with Ali. And um, he was also a very empowering, enabling manager to have. And so I think that the way we built those relationships across the organization, the way we didn't write strategy down, but we all kind of knew it, even when we thought we didn't. Like I still remember saying, oh, man, yeah, this was just before I left, I remember saying to um, to my boss, Man, I wish we had a clearer strategy from above. You know, I still was falling under that trap that a lot of my 
clients fall under who are product leaders say, I wish the business would tell us what the strategy is so we could do our job properly. Well, your job is to work out what the strategy is if you don't know it. And, and I think that I knew more about what the strategy was than I thought I did. And it just that I didn't see a PowerPoint or a beautiful presentation, I thought, oh, it can't be there. But actually, it was so intertwined in everything we did and said, and every, all the leaders were saying the same thing, that it, it was just everywhere. You couldn't miss it. And, I, and I, when I do work with clients now about strategy and they say, oh, what template should I use? Well, the template is in the ability to tell a story convincingly and have other people repeat it without you in the room. And I think that's we, I, I take a lot from that in terms of the clarity of direction that we went through. We didn't dilly-dally. We made mistakes, sure. We did things that didn't work. You know, Zero Personal is a good example. Payroll in the US is probably an even bigger example. But, you know, you know, you got to try these things. Not that aren't always going to work, but we were all very aligned once we got on board. And so you mentioned some of the, the individual leaders that you respected and you thought made an impact. When you look at your role personally and the team directly around you and over those years where the company was tripling revenues, in subsequent years, how did your role change and how did the team around you change during that period? Uh, my role did change over, over the years and it, it, I, kept, um, I kept ownership of the core zero business product for a long time and that was, that was important to me because that was the flagship product. It got the most attention. It was the most strategically important and that, that made me feel great to be part of uh, the success of that product. There, there was a time, though, when my role, and that role really was um, at the kind of, uh, head, if you like, head of product. We didn't have a CPO. It was kind of head of product across that part of the business. And we had other people who were looking after some of the internal systems, someone else looking after Zero Personal when it was going. Um, but that, that my role stayed within that, building out that practice for many years. And probably around five, maybe four or five years in, it started to shift as it became that part of the business became too big for one person to to look after, and we started to find ways to break it down. Um, and then um, Laura Cardinal came on board, uh, so probably in my last year or so, and I loved working with Laura. And so she was based in Australia, and so she took on a, a larger role, and I reported into her. And at that time, we were start, product people were starting to have less time at ZeroCons. And so some of the things that I'd enjoyed doing, representing at ZeroCon, were moving on. We were getting bigger now that we had to break up the products into sort of sub-products. And I'd, I felt like at that time um, I had done all I was going to do there and needed to do something different. It was sort of changing in necessary ways, but I wasn't necessarily the right person to keep going with that and to... Um, I think there was some other people who were coming through which were doing really good work. So I left really in a good way. I, was, I felt very good about reaching the place I did and achieving what I'd done and then um, wanted to try something new. So aside from what you talk about in terms of the team, the team reaching a scale that it needs to be broken into parts, before that point, what else kind of broke and needed to be rebuilt to be appropriate for the size and scale that the company became see like books get written about oh i'm going to tell you all the things that broke so you don't break them i i, I very rarely think like that i i struggle sometimes to i think i move on so quickly from the things that might have broken that i don't dwell on them enough to have actually had them register in my memory banks and so i i mean there were 
and even when I even when I look back and I go, oh, we used to have a resource meeting. We used to have a meeting that literally resourced projects, and yeah, it was a bad idea, and we didn't do it for very long. Uh, well, after I joined, we, we are, less than a year, that meeting disappeared, and we had persistent teams. I don't look at that as a mistake about doing resource meetings. I look at it as a as just the way we did things, and we found a better way. And uh, and I, yeah, I don't I don't look at my time at zero as anything broke. I think there were some decisions that didn't didn't work. I think not having product people representing at our largest conferences around the world was a big mistake. And they started putting marketing people on the stage or people who weren't as close to product. I think the audiences recognized that and that change. Uh, and I think it de-emphasized the importance of the product leadership roles in the company. And that had been a big part of how we would, how we had scaled by creating strong valued leadership throughout the organization, not just rod at the top shouting off feature names and engineers building it. You know, we had really respected leadership um, throughout the business. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question very well, but, yeah. No, I, I, I think it, it, you did. Would you answer the question differently again if I asked, if you would do it again, how would you approach things differently? Yes. Good question and a good reframing because there are things when I look back now with a much more mature product brain and having seen and experienced things that work better. I feel one of the missed opportunities still at zero now that I look back, and it certainly happened when I was there, and I alluded to it at the beginning where I talked about we were largely building purchase orders, invoices, credit notes, GST return, budget. They were very clear features that you need to have in an accounting app. And it was we didn't spend enough time in those years thinking about how those things fit together in the workflow of a business. So, for example, I now use Xero more than I ever used it as a product manager because I run my own business off it. And, for example, the mental arithmetic and gymnastics I need to do to um, to do certain bank rec where I've got to pull in a receipt from over here, I've got to decide whether it's entertainment that can be taxed if I have to deduct it, you know, if it's some of it's non-deductible. There's some account regional accounting stuff that I have to remember and know how to do. I have to be somewhat of an, an accountant brain to be able to use zero because the layer between the accountant, the the ledger and the functionality is quite it's quite small, right? And so I feel like they could focus we and I could have focused more on the jobs to be done than the features being built. And that was something that I see evidence of them starting to think about that more uh, over the last few years and that there's that you know they have a team that's focused on helping people get paid and you know cash flow is really important uh, as a business how do I get paid better well you know maybe there's invoice reminders maybe there's better stripe integration maybe there's the invoice itself the way I present the invoice might help me get paid better so there's things so those are so that's something you could really measure the outcome of beyond just building really good invoicing. And I think that's something that um, I wish I'd done more of and thought more about. Similarly with analytics, right? Like we we did have, we finally in my last year got a data analyst who was dedicated to product, not just, you know, borrowed from marketing who had a whole big data team, right? Who were just creating stats for the news reports. Uh, so to get a 
product, a, a data person product was super useful. Uh, and well, I didn't quite have enough time to work with that person to really get the most out of the insights we could have from the product. And we were for a long time, we weren't allowed to put analytics into the product beyond the transactional data because of security concerns. We couldn't put GA in there for a long time. Uh, that's changed now. Um, and that sort of held us back a little bit. And so I think more insights into the product would have been um, would have been really useful. I mean, we, sub, we, we compensated for that with really good customer engagement. Like I say, those six conferences a year were gold mines for me, especially where I didn't get out to customers as much as I would have liked. But that was very informative in terms of being right next to those key clients. Um, and so, so yeah, I think there's there's things around yeah that just getting closer to the customer would have been we could have done more of that. I think when I look back. So you've mentioned marketing twice. Once in the context of marketers taking presence at Zerocon, where product teams, product managers previously did, and and secondly in the context of marketers having a big kind of data capability. Zero's I guess always been known for his marketing and to a large extent, the innovations there. How did you see that internally? And how did marketing influence across the organization inside Zero? So it's another area where we, marketing was amazing. The sort of marketing out was very good. Like they really understood the value proposition of Zero as a product. They had their own capability. There was never any conflict of resources. beyond. In the early days, there was. It was a little bit, actually, in the early days when I first got there, there was a bit of contention because they would need someone to update the website. And so they'd come to the resource meeting and go, we need some resource, right? Uh, but but very quickly, we dedicated resource to their part of the business. So they had their own front-end developers and WordPress developers so they could do their thing. So they were great at positioning and presenting the zero brand and the zero value proposition. I think that was real strength. What they didn't do, and it's not necessarily because they didn't want to, um, and we didn't push it enough, they didn't do product marketing in that. They didn't bring Intel back to the product team. They didn't identify markets that were untapped. They didn't necessarily um, interact with us to say, hey, we're, you know, we're leaking from our funnel that we're bringing to you, and it's you know for some reason they're not staying. You know, there was a little bit of talk around that about the, about the conversion process and we certainly thought about it but but it was only later probably three or four years in that we actually got somebody from marketing who would spend a considerable amount of time with the product team and so I think that that was starting to improve to try and create that two-way balance not just hey product team what's coming out next week what what can we talk about but much more about the um, understanding the value proposition before we built it you know, which type of customers would this appeal to and, and for what reason, you know, what would the upshot be if they use this feature well for their business? And so I think that was starting to improve. Um, and and so the fact that we lived in somewhat different worlds meant that the data science part of it was, were, you know, data science teams have to specialise in product. I think you can't just have data science and it's available to the whole business because, Marketing is close, often marketing is closer to the CEO, closer to the mouthpiece of the business, and they'll want some fancy stats coming out there to say how many billions of dollars have gone through the system that they can put in the next press release. You know, the next funding raise, they'll need to get data to support a funding raise, right? So those data scientists can be put to good use on things that are largely irrelevant to product um, and not do the deep insights work that you need from a product team. And so 
that was a good move to actually specialize data science into the product team and embed it in product rather than having it as an agency to the company and we always lost to marketing. And so if you look back on annual reports that Zero Publish, one of the notable mentions in 2014 was that the company doubled the size of its team to 758 employees. Did the company need to add that many people? And how did that type of scale and growth change things inside the company? I can't answer whether they needed to. I don't, and I don't know how much of that growth was in product and engineering. I suspect a lot was in sales uh, offshore in particular. Uh, Australia was growing rapidly. The US would have been ramping up by then in the UK. Um, I certainly think it was, I mean, it's demonstrably justifiable, right? Because they're still growing. Uh, uh, and and you know, the last report was 18% growth and they're, they're, you know, they're a big company now. It's harder to move those numbers. Um, and so we definitely needed from a capability point of view to build product to keep up with demand. We were now, we were a global product um, and needed to create global capability. And so part of that growth would have been building local capability uh, initially in Australia. Uh, we, we actually didn't just have developers and product in New Zealand anymore. We actually started to build that out in Australia and in the US, around the US payroll product. And that was really important to do that in a really considered way because we'd resisted doing that. We wanted to be a development and HQ, build the core value propositions in in one place where everyone could make decisions that were balanced across the market forces rather than being swayed one way or the other. So we, the core team stayed in New Zealand for a long time. And, but we did look for opportunity. We couldn't grow fast enough in New Zealand to keep up with demand. So we looked for opportunities to build modules or separate product SKUs in other markets so that they could operate somewhat independently from the rest of the engineering capability and the develop and the product capability. So in the US, it was payroll. In Australia, they had fixed assets and um, some other stuff I can't remember, um, but things that we didn't really need to collaborate. And uh, I think I did, a, I did a presentation years ago where I was sort of bagging collaboration. You know, we often think collaboration is amazing, right? Like you've got to be able to collaborate. Well, it's better if you don't have to. You move a lot faster if you don't have to collaborate. And that's what we try to do across those different offices in terms of product and engineering capability. Sure, there was needs to collaborate in some ways, but we wanted to minimize that to as little as possible so that they could get on and do their own thing. And in fact, to the extent that they even chose in America, they chose their own front-end framework, completely separate to our front-end framework that we're building design libraries for and they could have just picked off the shelf. And they go, well, we don't use that technology. We can't hire anyone in this local market who knows how to use it. Um, we're going we're gonna to hire some Angular developers or something. I don't know what they were using. And they took the hit of having to replicate you know, the front-end stack to make it look and feel the same for an end user but from a development point of view, it was a completely different stack. And that's fine. Like I, it meant that we didn't have to keep them up to date with the other framework. And if they wanted to wear that, then then they could do it. And uh, I didn't really have a problem with that. So organizational design and philosophies around organizational architecture have probably come a long way since that time. But my observation was Zero was actually leading some of the industry thinking. It was possibly never captured for other people to consume. Mm. But if you look back over that time and how the growth 
geographically occurred and which modules were built where. What would you think you have done differently about the growth strategy and the allocation of responsibility across the offices? Yeah, again, I, maybe I'm not critical enough of myself. I can tell you what things, what aspects of it helped make it work. Like our, our product organisation was a pure reflection of strategy. And it's another example of where nobody spoke strategy, but it, it was evidence in everything we do, right? So the fact that we had a commitment to building payroll in the US was represented by the fact that there was a team in the US building payroll, right? The fact that we were going to make a punt in the you know, personal banking uh, space, for you know, despite the fact that it didn't work so well, you know, there was a dedicated team around that and they had their own resources and things. Um, the fact that we couldn't scale in New Zealand, our resources meant we had to go offshore. So there was a strategic imperative that if we wanted to grow and be the massive multi-billion dollar company we knew we could be, we couldn't constrain ourselves to the New Zealand market. There simply aren't enough people in New Zealand to form a team of that size and that expert. And it wasn't even skills, right? We have the skills, just not the volume of people. So we had to find ways of breaking the product down in such a way to minimize that dependency, to manage it, but to enable those different satellite teams to, to work somewhat autonomously. Um, although to this day, I don't think they've done anything in the UK. Maybe they have. I, mean, uh, I don't think they've got a capability in the, in the UK at the moment. Uh, which is interesting. It'd be interesting to see what their thoughts are around that, whether that's something they want to do to help scale or whether they can do it out of the US, Australia and New Zealand. Uh, they may be able to have enough resources to keep themselves going. So you've mentioned Zero Personal. So as we both know, Zero's accounting software predominantly designed for small businesses. What, what catalyzed a strategy to try to expand into personal financial management? Yeah, I don't think I was involved enough in the, at that decision point to know why we thought it was going to work. I, th I think some of the thinking was that we thought we could leverage the success we had in Zero Bank Rec, which was essentially doing some of this categorization already and had some awareness. You know, it, We had the automation of feeds, right? Like we could automate data from feeds, so we were quite proud of how we'd done that with the relationship we had with banks around New Zealand and so we thought I suspect we thought we had the plumbing to be able to make this work but I don't think we really understood the drivers behind customer behavior and why they would want to have something sitting between them and their bank giving them insights around their spending and in fact to this day I don't know any bank that and they've all dabbled in it right I don't know any that are doing it really well and have nailed that I just don't think it's a big enough problem for people I mean, it feels good on paper. Know where your money's going and see if you can save some money. And do you know how much you're spending on insurance or that coffee shop down the road? But I don't know. I'm just not sure humans are set up to be that. That you know, You've got to be a bit of a data geek to really get into that. And I don't think anyone's really cracked that one. So I, so it didn't work. And to their credit, they pulled the pin and, um, and we moved on, right? So how, what specifically catalyzed pulling the pin? What was the metric that made everyone realize that this isn't working and it is time to wind it up? I, I mean, I, I I don't know the exact numbers, but I mean, it wasn't getting the engagement that it needed to have. There wasn't the uptake. We weren't selling it. It was, you know, we were working through BNZ at the time. You know, they were, um, I think they were even struggling to 
to get customers on it. Um, it I, I just think for all sorts of for what it well for whatever reason it didn't it wasn't solving a big enough problem for people to pay for it or for it to have the value that it needed to continue to invest in it. So, so you you mentioned that you felt that Zero always had a very clear strategy. In terms of the narrative, tell me how Zero Personal fitted in to the broader Zero strategy. Yeah, because it was my, it wasn't my world because I didn't work on Zero Personal as much or at all. It was the that was when they had a specialized another product manager was working on that part of the business. So I don't know that I have enough insight to be able to shed any light on zero personal it would it felt like a very small time in the zero timeline for me so yeah yeah but it it sounds like it would be fair to say that whilst you thought that the zero strategy was always very clear this element was it it was because i was on the zero business product and that strategy was clear to me but yeah you're right i i don't know what this i wasn't involved in the strategic discussions around that product or even around some of the acquisitions in the early years or um you know the i was involved in the zero payroll conversation so we also had discussions around payroll and the strategic importance of that in australia in particular where people don't they they see payroll and accounting as one and the same and so it's very hard to enter australia without a payroll product um, but yeah, personal and some of the other things, I, I wasn't as involved in those things because those strategies didn't impact me as much. Mm-hmm. And so around 2012, Zero made a number of acquisitions, uh, predominantly in tools to support accountants and bookkeepers themselves. How did that change things inside the company, started to acquire other organizations? I think because we were the acquirer, it was somewhat business as usual for us and probably a lot harder for the likes of Workflow Max and, you know, John and, and, and the team, you know, Steve coming in, like probably was a bit more of a culture shock for them coming in. We were all just doing our thing and we were the important ones, you know, we, we were getting all the attention and loving it, right, and bringing in some other companies was great. It was like, cool, if that's going to help, that's great. But it didn't change our culture. The people who came on very quickly um fitted in amazingly you know steve's probably still here i think i think john moved on but uh uh and so and then the payroll guys came along yeah they were so Stuart, and so so we had some really good people coming on who just joined in with the sense of unity that we had as a company at zero and so yeah i don't have too many bad things to say about it, it didn't certainly personally i never felt compromised but that's because none, none of the acquisitions had any impact on me or, or they only helped me by, you know, enhancing the experience for customers. And how was the strategy narrative around those acquisitions spoken about? I don't know. I have no, I had, I had no insight. So it was not part of my, my world in terms of those, those sort of decisions. And it's interesting, right? Because I think strategy plays out in different layers in the business, right? If you're thinking about acquisition merger strategy, uh, or even certain pricing strategies, they were they were things that were that happened. I wasn't part of many of those conversations. But if you're thinking about the strategy of, you know, of the product I was looking after and how 
that was evolving and the customers it was going to support and you know the, whether it was accountants or small businesses that we had to appease the most those sorts of things were much more aligned with what I was thinking about and maybe maybe that's more product strategy rather than business strategy maybe there's some differences of uh, of horizons there and different people getting involved so yeah so that's probably why I don't ha- I haven't thought a lot about the acquisition strategy or even the zero personal strategy for that much because they were outside my agreement to be to a large degree and so my take on zero if, if students were to study it as a business case study a very relevant chapter mm. would be zero's attempted market entry in the u.s yes how was that spoken about before entering the u.s and what do you think happened good and bad it was fascinating right because i was part of those conversations around um, so we were always going to be a global player. Any English-speaking country was fair game. And we obviously saw the US as a massive opportunity to grow at a scale that we couldn't even imagine, right? And that was from very early on. That was always in our sights that we would go into the US. The first somewhat naive expectation was, well, there were there were two things that stood in our way when we first put our foot in that water, right? One is that the channel that had worked so well in Australia and New Zealand, like selling through accountants and getting them to recommend zero into their clients, didn't work in this it didn't work the same way. The accountant the accountants in the US were far more reluctant to change and try something new. They had for a very long time been used to a very strong and uh, um, a strong incumbent that had been there for a long time and had tentacles everywhere. So Intuit, while we also, so that was our first thing. We thought the accounting channel would work. It didn't work as well. So the second thing we thought was, well, we bowled Myob over. That was pretty easy. We'll do the same with Intuit. They're another old-fashioned desktop-based Luddite that they won't see us coming. Um, and that was true for Myob. They didn't see us coming, and we we. we did really well and they didn't respond very quickly but Intuit responded very quickly and like you might imagine a wounded bear would respond uh, they didn't take kindly to it at all and very quickly doubled down their investment on their web online product and I would have thought and I remember going to conferences in the US and feeling somewhat disappointed that we couldn't offer as much as the Intuit web product was now starting to offer. And this was maybe a year or so after we'd entered the market. And so they very quickly responded to us. I remember being in the UK and Intuit weren't really in the UK at that time very much. And I walked past a phone booth with a poster from Intuit saying, uh, poking fun at the fact that zero at the time you couldn't ring anybody for support at zero it was all online or email right and their poster said we don't do zero support (laughs) and i thought really flattering right really flattering that a big company like intuit would would go to the you know go to the trouble of doing a derogatory ad about zero support in a country they're barely in but it was a reflection of how seriously I think they took the threat of zero coming into their home, home turf and, in fact, being a global player. And we, 
underestimated at the time what that response would do. So I think channel didn't work as well. We had a much more powerful incumbent to get past. And maybe a third one we misunderstood was the complexity of a country of 300 million people and 50 odd states, right? Like, so the differences in the different sales tax regimes across the country um, was something that we probably could have been more targeted with the types of businesses we tried to appeal to because uh, not all businesses operate with the same sort of simplicity. Uh, yeah, we've actually got things pretty easy in New Zealand, Australia in terms of compliance and uh, so forth. And so um, that that was a lot harder. And we all, uh, I mean, now there's lots of things why it made it hard, right? Like going into the US was hard because we didn't appreciate just how sensitive they are to anything that didn't sound like it came from America. So I used to do all the voiceovers for our videos and reasonably early on that I, my accent could not be online. They had to get Philip Feelinger and Sarah Gobel, who were both a Canadian and American speaker, who could do the voiceovers for our uh, training videos because we were embarrassed about sounding Kiwi and didn't want to put the American audience off. So there was all these things that um, I just don't think, I think we just naively thought, well, we're amazing. They'll love us just like everyone else does. Um, and it didn't work out that way. And, and it, you know, they will and have continued to make inroads into the US. Don't get me wrong. It's not like a, uh, it's not a lost cause, but it certainly hasn't happened as fast as they would have liked it to. And so observing all of that, what lessons do you take into other companies that you're involved in? So uh, is to don't treat the US as just one market. That would be the first thing. It's, it's a big country and you need to be very clear about how you're going to enter the market. If you're going to do it state by state, if you're going to try and go in there and be all things to all people, I suspect you're biting off a big apple right like that's a hard thing to do and so being very clear about how your product fits with or doesn't fit with with parts of that very big market i think what we did do right was having people on the ground in the us who could do some of that research for us to help bring that intel back and i don't i don't know there was always this demand to try and have in-market product teams to build the product that that market needed, but we resisted that for a long time. And I think I still think that's the right approach. I still think it's the efficiency gains of having a centralized product capability or development capability in particular. I think unless you can really break it off and make it truly independent, outweigh um, putting, you know, having teams working on the same product in-market competing with one another, working on the same code base. It feels like that's what was trolling. So I think we did did that well. Um, but, yeah, I think re- being really focused in those markets about how you can enter there without um, without trying to take it all at once. And I think the temptation is you do just see it as one big market and go, yeah, yeah, we could be like a million people. The, the total addressable market for our product is everyone in America. But, you know, like that that's um, not necessarily the right way to go about it. So I want to zoom all the way back to 2009 and again, and even before. So you, you mentioned that there was that audience that, that loves Zero and possibly 
going forward, there was too little thought about how each feature played together in the workflow of small businesses. But there must have been some really good decisions made early on about the user experience. Can you tell me about what you think the most impactful decisions that were made at the very early stages of the product were? So I think the the we we use the term design led, right? Take it for what it is. Um, it, it just meant we hired really good designers, as far as I was concerned. But we also valued their opinions and leveraged their insights into a lot of the research we did into customers, um, and and celebrated the differentiator that our good design was in the market. So I think that was that was really important for us moving forward i think once we once we realized that selling direct to small business wasn't the right approach to to get the scale and growth we needed we had to make our product appealing to accountants as well i say as well but actually i still think to this date it appeals to accountants more than it appeals to small business even though small business kind of rave about it, there's, there's a good brand out there. So we somewhat reluctantly, I have to say, from the product team, created features and prioritized features that we knew were going to be important to accountants. So like things like auto-correcting journals, um, you know, uh, what's, what's some other good things? Like... Um, bank rules so so you know like the the tech the way the report we invested a lot in reporting which you know um to a large degree was to make our accountants look good when they created the annual accounts pack right like they, they can accumulate the assimilate these reports into something good for their clients so we did a lot of work to make it smooth for them we invested a lot in the accountants tools and what we used to call my zero uh, which enabled them to manage multiple accounts across that were using zero, and so I think those decisions probably meant that a lot of the feedback we get wasn't from accountant, wasn't from a builder going, "Hey, well, look, when I go on site and I open up the mobile app, it doesn't have what I need as a builder," because you know, like, or when I go when I go home, um, I don't even go on there. I let I let the wife do it. Because she does my accounts, I don't even understand what's in there, right? Whereas maybe it would have been better if, they, if, as a couple, they could have both gone in there and done some of the accounts, right, rather than just relying on his wife who was better at accounting, for example. And so I, th- I think a lot of our feedback, our, count, our product council, you know, the, 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 the feedback we used to get direct from users was only accountants. We never managed to get a, an official group or rotating group of small businesses giving us, you know, being part of that council. And so that might have felt somewhat weird because we like to think we were appealing to the small business. That was our story. We was, you know, we you know, made accounting accessible to small business. But for a long time, our success was actually making it attractive to accountants. And that meant doing things that small businesses didn't even understand. Uh, and in fact, it led to, I remember having a conversation with one accountant once and asking him, oh, this must be, you know, like, because we were always worried that we were going to take away business for them because, you know, now small businesses could do their accounts and wouldn't need an accountant, theoretically. And the accountant, was, we were talking about this conflict, and the accountant said, oh, I don't let my clients anywhere near it. <laughs> he said, I'd rather do the accounts and make sure they're right. I love Zero. Zero's great. I can do I can do all the stuff I need to do there. 
you know, it, it makes sense to me and I'd rather the clients didn't go in there and muck it up. Which was like, you know, it kind of stung a little bit because I thought we were making this beautiful accounting for small business. But um, for, for a long time, we were making beautiful accounting for accountants and that was part of our success. So there was no way we weren't going to get recommended by accountants anymore um, as part of what we were doing. Yeah, I think, I think you know, when we think back about the way in which we prioritised features and experiences, we put a lot of emphasis on making it work for accountants. You know, as our sales channel of, you know, that had proved successful, they needed to be strong advocates of the product. And in many cases, we, we might have said we were building a product for small business, but it had to work for their accountants um, almost as a priority because at the end of the day, they were going to be submitting reports to the Inland Revenue and they needed to be accurate. They needed to meet certain compliance standards um, to avoid their clients from being sued, right? You know, like there was certain requirement. It had to work for them. And so to the extent that I was worried that, they were going to think that zero was going to take business away from them because we were making accounting so easy for small businesses that it would put accountants out of work, right? And so we were talking about this potential conflict of interest, and and so that made me think, well, maybe we've maybe we've done too good a job of making this really appeal to accountants, and maybe there's still work to do to make it appeal to non-accountants. And this was highlighted beautifully when we changed a. a a, 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 a navigation, a couple of navigation items that used to say accounts receivables and accounts payables. They were two parts of the product that you could enter into that made perfect sense to any accountant in the room. They knew what was under AP and AR, um, but most small businesses had no, no idea what AR meant, right? And so we changed it to, I don't know what the latest iteration is, something around, you know, in, you know invoicing and purchases or something yeah right and there was uproar our accountants could not believe that we changed something that was so right into something that was so wrong we had you know under purchases we had payroll <laughs> or something crazy like that right because we just replaced you know ap with 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 purchases or something right so it didn't make sense from an, from a, an accounting point of view but for most small businesses, it would have made a lot more sense. They could have found these features way more easily. So it was what it was a minor change we did, which really highlighted the different audiences we were trying to appeal to, and the quite different requirements that each had. If we really wanted to make a product that appealed to someone who didn't know what it, accounting was, it would have been a very different product. And maybe there's still an opportunity to create a different skew of the product that is very much targeted towards someone who doesn't understand accounting at all um, but is uh, still wants to be compliant and still wants to be able to get paid for the services they do and still needs to pay their people and still needs to make sure they keep record of the things that are important, right? And so that would have been a very different lens through which to look at this problem. Uh, and the fact that, you know, Rod came from an accounting background, made it, you know, he was trying to solve the problem that accountants had, um, yet our marketing perhaps spoke differently. Which is interesting. I, I, I'm not sure if it'd be interesting to see where the product goes. And, and in fact, you see other companies coming in, other startups coming into the market who are trying to solve that, you know, you know, accounting by stealth 
Uh, and, you know, the likes of Henry are doing some interesting stuff with trying to make tax go away for people um, and sort of standing in between them and, and IRD. And so, yeah, it's going to be interesting whether that creates an opportunity for people or whether Zero uh, are going to start thinking about it differently. So on that note, it's been six years or nearly six years since you left Zero. Uh, it's quite a different scale of company now. What do you make of the zero journey and zero looking at it from the outside rather than that side? Of my journey or their journey to where they are today? Both, if you've got thoughts on both. Um, on my journey, hugely grateful that I was there at the right time, the right place. Learned a lot about leadership, about working with people, about building products and working it all across the business. I, I love that. That launched my career as it is today. As I see it now, I still think people don't know how lucky they are. Zero is an amazing place to work, even at the size it is now. And I'm sure there are people in there who go, oh, my God, there's so many politics and it's like, but in terms of product and engineering autonomy and ability to make a difference in their fields, there are not, I don't know many companies that empower their people to the extent that they do at zero and that's part of the dna of the company like the, and i think you need to look at that and go shit i could i could pretty much do anything i like in the product there is nobody stopping me releasing something into the product tomorrow uh, which is true for most of the teams there are, there's not a huge level of hierarchy to, they don't have a they don't you know, most of the companies i have a contact with now there's a, there's some somewhat obfuscated approval process to get something into production and it normally goes up to the founder or the ceo to sort of sign it off and you know other parts of the organization make sure they do before they do anything right so there's and i'm not saying that that doesn't always work uh all that always fails but i think it's a it's an amazing thing that zero has been able to maintain that level of trust throughout the business to enable people to do extraordinary things so that Chugs a thought for me. When the company was scaling and the teams were scaling quickly, what do you think the cultural elements were that were really important to the success of the company? I mean, I can only really speak to the time I was there, and it would be the same. It's like we we were largely left to get on with it, and and I think we just hired good, influential leaders. I like who never played victim to not being able to do something or not being able to tell something. They just go and talk to Rod and say, "Well, what what's happening here? Why why are you telling people to do that? We're doing this, like or you know whatever it is." Or you know, Ali was a great person to go to if you didn't really understand something about an opportunity that we were exploring. Or, um, but largely, he left you let you get on with it. Like I used to say he was he's been he would he would have been my best boss right but we didn't have coffee every week we, he wasn't checking in on me every five minutes but I I absolutely would go to him with anything that I needed help with or support with and he would have my back and was hugely supportive but and so I often think of someone like Ali as like, how the hell can I be as influential a leader and manager with so with a, a seemingly so little effort. Right, like it was effortless leadership, and I think I uh, learned a lot from my time working with him and from the passion that 
Rod exhibited, right? They were all really, they, they were the opposites of each other, but together were, a, were an amazing team that influenced in different dimensions and, um, and in both important dimensions they were influencing on. And I think that, that was really important. And like I said at the very beginning, that alignment, the, 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 yes, there was hierarchy, but there was no, there was no sort of permission process. There was no sort of telling you off if you did something wrong. There was like, I, I still remember the first week or two I was there, there was a major release going on. I joined the team who was doing the release all the donuts, that sort of thing, right? I felt like I should should be there. It was the first time I hadn't slept over a night for, I don't know, since my teenage years, you know, getting up to no good probably. Um, the release went terribly wrong. Like it took us all night to recover. <laughs> and I remember saying halfway through, I was trying to keep calm. I was going, so what's uh, what's, uh, what's our plan B? You know, what happens if we can't? create that virtual directory or copy that file over there or whatever they were trying to do. Um, and they laughed at me. They said, there's no plan B, mate. We're just moving forward. We're just pushing on. <laughs> and like, no, nobody in the business would have known that was happening. We had thousands of customers at the time. We used to have outages, right? So we used to, we literally had to take the site down to do an update. Um, and the, this was just, you know, some of the engineers who were responsible for this release. Now, they happened to be Kirk Jackson, Craig Walker, and a number of other very smart people who I would also trust implicitly. But how good is that, having people like that who you know they'll work it out? And, you know, I, I know them better now than I did then, and I would have probably had a lot more confidence that they would have seen it through than I did at the time. But, you know, the, how good is that? You've got two of your key engineers running a significant release that would be in the front page of the newspapers if we were offline for another few hours. Nobody was checking in on us. Rod wasn't there on the phone going, is it ready? Is it ready? I'm going, for, I'm hitting refresh. I'm not seeing anything. It's telling me the server can't be found. Like there was none of that sort of panic and overbearing sense of you guys better not fuck this up, otherwise it's going to really be problems, you know, like, I don't know. I just felt, felt like that was a really good example of that complete autonomy that is to, there to this day that people are allowed to do things that could bring the company to its knees if they did the wrong thing um, or made a mistake but are unable to do it and, you know, touch wood to this day they haven't had any major fuck-ups because of it. It's not like, you know, you don't remove that risk by escalating all decisions up to the top dog. And so that's a great story that encompasses so many things about Xero's culture. From a purely technology perspective, were there any really significant moments or decisions in your recollection over your time there? Yes, uh, many. Uh, so I use this as anecdote as how technology leaders can influence product decisions because it's no good saying, I just want to make it better. It's too much tech debt. I get, you know, um, I need to make this algorithm more beautiful and more components or microservice that, whatever, right? You'll never win an argument like that. You'll never convince anybody that you've got something worth doing talking tech to a product person, generally. But And so you have to work out ways of 
helping other people who don't understand your craft understand the importance and frame it in a way that will resonate with with other people. And so the classic case for me was um, we'd been thinking, we, we were, I don't know if you can have a tech audience, but, but we were in this sort of multi-tenanted arrangement where we would create new database instances that would, you know, new customers would go into and then at a certain point you close it off and then and then you'd get, you know, when you loaded up the app, you'd get your query string and you'd point to the right shard that was your data, right? So we had this quite scalable architecture, but very manual to, to spawn these shards and um, and things were starting to get a little bit hairy provisioning new customers, right? And we probably could have hobbled along for probably a few more years doing that. Now, yeah, that kind of works, you know, it, it had some logic to it and... Um, but it was becoming incre increasingly burdensome to do updates across all those shards. And imagine doing a database update has to go across 20 shards and you don't want to get it wrong. Um, and so at one point, Man Wildash came to a meeting and declared, and this was sometime in the middle of the year, he said, if we don't do something about this, we won't be able to add another customer after December. And I think he even created a date. I think he even made up a date. And he probably was making up the whole story, to be honest. But but it was somewhat true, but it was beautifully framed in a way that, yes, was hyperbolic, but delivered by someone who was deeply respected, who knew what he was talking about, to a room of people who really wanted to add another customer after December, like desperately, <laughs> and to add a lot of customers after December. And that was the the beginning of the decision to invest in moving across to AWS and creating a, a platform that could be scaled accordingly to our growth aspirations. And we didn't know that it was going to take a number of years to actually provision. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a lot longer than we actually thought it was going to do to, to get there. But it was a decision that was fundamental in the ability that they have now to scale to the, to the size they are. You know, we, we, but it was no product manager is going to, you know, understand enough necessarily to know when to have made that move at the expense of building out purchase orders or payroll or any number of features that would have had way more backing behind them from way more people than our shards are fragile and we need to go to this thing with an acronym that you probably don't know what it means and can we have two and a half years to do it with a dedicated team of 50 people. I don't know if it took that long or that many people, but it took a lot of people and a lot of time. Um, and so, yeah, so this ability to create an imperative that resonates with a wide audience if you're a technologist, that was a big moment. So for the product managers that might listen to this, that that was a happy accident in, in, in the way that you describe it. But you would hope that... Uh, risks of that quanta and importance uh, don't need to rely on happy accidents. So how, what advice would you give to product managers who might be receiving those types of concerns or signals to make sure that they're in the right side of that equation? Yeah, I don't think I'd describe it as a happy accident. I just think it was a conversation that happened that was... No longer, it wasn't framed in, oh, you know, um, it's going to take me, like if, if, if he had said, it's going to take me an hour 
to do the next release because I have to copy all these database scripts across to 20 servers. And every time we add a new shard, that's another six hours, I don't know, another six hours of effort. Then someone might have gone, well, seven hours, probably worth it. I'd rather get out these five features than save you seven hours a month. Right? Like if he'd said it like that, it wouldn't have got the attention. But he didn't say it like that. He said, this company ain't going to add another customer in December. So he'd extrapolated the impact to to something that was more meaningful. I think that he, I, I, I've talked to him before. He, he doesn't think it was that big a deal, but I just think it was. And part of it was his, his own innate paranoia. Like he really was worried about that, right? He, he took a lot of ownership of being able to continue to scale the platform. And so, but he just, maybe the accident was him stumbling across a framing that resonated. Um, and, it, and it, you know, and I'm oversimplifying it. It wasn't just one meeting and we all went, oh, yeah, we should probably do it then. Uh, you know, this happened over a period of time, but the importance of doing it became increasingly clear to everybody. And it, he wasn't just convincing a product manager either, right? He was convincing an entire organization because this was a massive commitment. We had to, uh, even when even underestimating the impact, we still had to create some dedicated resources for over a considerable period of time. There was a massive migration effort required. So there was going to be potentially impact to business as usual. There was going to be, we had to live with two worlds for a period of time. So it was a, we had to assign dedicated product managers to that group. We had to decide, you know, dedicated resources and engineers to actually design how it might work. So it was a, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a big commitment. But I think for product managers who might listen to that and go, oh, well, my engineers are complaining all the time and I ignore them and it's fine, <laughs> then, you know, um, I, th- you, I mean, any good leader in a product role needs to be a good listener, right? And if they can't, and you've got to have that tension between technology and product to have this conversation about what's the opportunity cost of not doing the product thing that the product manager wants to do versus the tech thing. And it's never a simple equation of numbers and you can go, this is bigger than that. And so you have to learn, and this is why technology leadership is so critical in a product company, because you've got to have people who can stick their head up above the technology and understand the implications of not investing in technology rather than how good it will feel when you clear up that tech debt or you know reduce the error count. Like it's That's not as meaningful to a non-technical person, but... You know, there's lots you can do to quantify the cost of the cost to serve of a product that's weak at the knees, right? Like Rich Mironoff does a good pie chart, right, of how much time you spend on product features versus keeping this puppy alive. Versus... I hate that, Mel actually, but let, let's not go into that and debate the product pie philosophy. But uh... Well, what I like about it, and, and it's good that we disagree, I like disagreement, um, I, but what I like about it is most people who aren't in the game like we are don't understand the cost of maintaining a platform. I don't understand why I don't get any new features right now in zero and haven't for five years. Because I and how many hundreds of developers have they got? Because probably thirty percent of them are just working on keeping that thing alive, right? And like that, that, that percentage will vary, but it will. Most founders will think it's about five percent. They, they'll underestimate it. They go, "Look, there's ten of you. All I want is one feature." Well, they're not all working on that feature. <laughs> and so I, I don't know. I think it's a good. Uh, maybe it's a trite way of looking at the way in which you 
you run yourselves, but I think it's an interesting equation to think about what your capacity actually is at any point in time. And on the topic of capacity, we'll wind things up there and say thanks to Tokes who agreed to be our first 6-4 guest. We do intend to tell more stories about Zero's journey, specifically the early years from 2007 to 2010 and Zero's journey to public cloud. This has been 6-4, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures and learnings from Kiwi tech organisations. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know and share it with someone else who you think would enjoy it too. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, please get in contact to suggest them. Until next episode, goodbye.